With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Hi, all. Kinsey Schofield here with the To Die For Daily podcast, and I am with one of my dear friends, Dr. Tessa Dunlop. Uh, Tessa, I think people are going to click on this link thinking we're going to fight, but the you know the the secrets out. We're we're friends. I really admire your work, and I have no desire to fight with you in real life. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not gunning for a fight today, girlfriend. <laughs> um, <laughs> or you? No, funnily enough. Oh, go ahead. Well, I think one of the problems with some of the talk show formats is they put quite a lot of guests in. They cram you in like four, four in 10 minutes and they bait you. Normally it's the male host and they kind of throw out a line that they know baits you. Like I'm immediately pushed into the Sussex camp. I'm no such thing. You know, I'm, I'm an impartial bystander just giving my opinion. So that immediately gets my hackles up. And then they immediately look for the clear blue water between their guests, i.e. opponents' opinions, so that they come together and smash heads. And then at the end of it, if at least two people don't like each other, that's seen as a big victory and great for clickbait. And actually, I don't think it's a particularly healthy way to conduct debate, whether on radio, podcast or television, but it is what it is, Kinsey. And we're grafters and we're out there and you've got to go with the flow. But if a man shouts at me, I quite often will shout back. Right, right. Well, I actually wrote something on my website where I said, if you listen to, you know, Tessa, if you honestly listen to what she's saying, there is humor and sarcasm in what she's saying. And she's typically pretty critical of them. I mean, I remember one time we were talking about something and you made a, and it's sometimes it's so quick that you might miss it, but you made a joke about Harry's beard. And I thought, now, if anybody is listening, she is being facetious. That is, she is being clever. This is not a vicious fight. And she clearly understands the parties and she's so witty that she knows how to slide in a joke right there. And I think a lot of people, you're right, just get mixed up in the yelling, but you wrote the most beautiful book. Well, first of all, this is my favorite cover I have ever seen in my life. Were you thrilled when you saw this Elizabeth and Philip cover? So interesting, because this is with my American publisher for Elizabeth and Philip, Pegasus. Now, my original cover in Britain, I don't know how many people are, are watching this podcast, but the cover the Brits chose were Elizabeth and Philip looking toward one another. It yeah. was an intimate picture. Right. And the, the picture the Americans chose was one of them looking outwards. And I thought, goodness, that's so American. In fact, I went to speak to a group of American women in Surrey here in England, and they went, that's so American. They've got them looking out to an audience playing to the gallery. You know, often in Hollywood movies, you declare love and you do it in an airport in front of everybody or some such. Right, right. And English culture, I think, is much more reserved in that respect. And intimate, if I'm going to declare love to you, Kinsey, I'm probably not going to do it in the middle of the podcast, right. even though I'm an exhibitionist. So I thought there was a really interesting um, cultural decision there about the cover. But weirdly, I think the American cover is much more honest. I believe in all the research I've done, Elizabeth and Philip's relationship worked best 
when they were out there representing monarchy, whether it was in Britain, but also abroad, overseas visits on the Britannia that they both loved so much around the Commonwealth. And that's what this picture is, them working away from home, where incidentally the Queen had Philip to herself. Okay, well, I'm going to go out of order then, because um, this leads into one of my questions I have down the line. I love this quote about why Elizabeth and Philip worked. They believed in the mission. The mission was bigger than marriage. The mission was the monarchy. And I feel like that is what this cover represents. Um, Now, I I loved this quote because it reminded me of Charles and Diana, that we've hear, we hear Diana talk about these interventions that Philip and Elizabeth had with them, but we never really knew what was said. But this quote about it's bigger than marriage, you know, it's the mission is the monarchy. All of a sudden, when I read that, I was transported into a drawing room with Philip and Elizabeth talking to Diana and Charles. Are, do you feel like those are the types of conversations they had when they were going through their difficult period? Yeah, for sure. I think... What's really critical, and I think it bleeds into even today's narrative, especially, in fact, today's narrative with Harry and Meghan, is when you marry somebody within the British royal family, you're not just marrying the individual, you're marrying the institution. Now, it really helps if you believe in that institution. Philip was an exiled prince. He was Elizabeth's third cousin. He was to the manor born. He knew the script. He had bags of entitlement. He signed himself Prince Philip of Greece during the war, even though he had not a penny to his name, and he'd been exiled. Um, So therefore, he really valued what he married, not just in Elizabeth, peaches and cream, quite pretty girl next door, but actually something much bigger than Elizabeth, the realm, the monarchy that she came with and that he believed in. They both really believed in the mission. Now, Charles and Diana, less so. There was a complacency. Elizabeth never had Charles's complacency because you remember she saw her uncle abdicate. She saw her father really struggle to reinvigorate monarchy. And the only reason he managed, by the way, because he was a bit of a klutz, George VI, is because the war came along mm-hmm. and actually hearts and minds, the monarchy, etc., all were emboldened in that period. The British brand was, was emboldened. And the, and the king, therefore, at the top of the brand, standing, resolutely staying in London, etc. Charles didn't have that. He was one of the soft baby boomers, you know, that we laugh about so much. He's the actual archetypal baby boomer, born with everything, fairly, you know, sort of, OK, he struggles in school and so forth. But he's very sure about where he's going. He's going to become king. But on his terms, mm-hmm. these post-war kids are yeah. wrapped in cotton wool in, in, in some respects. And the girl he marries, Diana, yes, she's aristocratic, but she's not to the manor born. She's not royal. She's actually had quite a disturbed upbringing. And she doesn't believe in monarchy in the way that Philip did. She's not questing for a realm. And then go one step further to Meghan. She she doesn't even get monarchy. Yeah. She's from sharp-elbowed Hollywood, where the best person rises or the luckiest person rises to the top. She can't even work out how to curtsy to the queen by her own admission or doesn't want to. Right. So she's, if you like, while she carries, she's she's foreign like Philip. We were xenophobic towards Philip as well. She's beautiful, more beautiful than Harry is for a man. And Philip was way more beautiful than Elizabeth was. All my old women told me that. 
you know, we were a bit suspicious because he was just like too good looking. Right? <laughs> so so these get these get the hackles up of people who are watching thinking, what's that all about? Are they fortune hunters? But the difference with Philip is he believes in monarchy. Megan didn't and doesn't. And the other thing is, of course, she wasn't married to a future king. So she had less to believe in. Doesn't matter how charismatic Hazard was. He was never going to get his hands on the gold, was he? Oh, Oh, that was that's those are like a million good points right there. I'm going to go back because I don't want to skip this question. I I have noticed that you write a lot about extraordinary women. Um, is that what led you in the direction of writing about Queen Elizabeth and Philip? It, it was actually I was I was asked to write about them. I wrote about um, the largest female service for women during World War Two was the ATS, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was basically the female army. But that makes it sound more glitzy than it is yeah. because they weren't actually allowed to fight. They could die, you know, <laughs> on a bomb site, a bit of shrapnel could t- take them out, but they couldn't fire a gun. They couldn't fight back. So they were kind of quasi, you know, because that would have disturbed the gender right. the, the norms and, and the different gender spheres way too much. People in the war office would have totally lost all their hair with the very thought of that. So they were very strictly non-combatants and they were in service in hock to supporting the male army. And Elizabeth was very much used as a piece of sort of PR puff. It always struggled to recruit enough girls. Women always wanted to join the WAFs, the, the Women's Air Force or the Wrens, sharper uniforms, classier kind of girl, harder to get into. That The ATS was always dragging along the bottom looking for recruits, which is why somebody like Elizabeth, you know, gives it a fillip, especially at the end of the war when we're desperately trying to recruit girls to go overseas to support the Allied Army of Occupation, which is spread over right the whole of Europe. You know, it's two million strong by 1945. And a lot of parents don't want their girls going over to Europe, thank you very much, where they're horribly outnumbered. The big fear, incidentally, in the war, in the Second World War, for, for, the, for women, isn't German bullets, it's promiscuous men, or rather men making women promiscuous. That's the big worry in Parliament about putting women in uniform. That they'll wow. be, be naughty. Which, and of course, Elizabeth didn't have a chance to do anything naughty because she would go down to her training camp in Camberley, 15 miles away from Windsor. And I know this because two of my women, Gwen and Barbara, were in barracks down in Camberley. They had a high old time. They met prostitutes. They learned what a lesbian was. Not Elizabeth. She shot off back to the castle where she spends every night. Yeah. So she doesn't even get that integration with her female peers, let alone with male peers. Oh, my goodness. All right. I had a question that was similar to this and something you'd said previously. Um, You know, the patriotic sacrifices of deceased members of the royal family, um, they made them important and popular figures. They made them almost icons, you know, during their their era. Will we ever see that again? Because it's like you said, Charles was born wrapped in wrapped in, in cloth. Charles is, is I don't want to use the word delicate, but is he delicate? And will we ever see people like Philip and um, Queen Elizabeth again, who, you know, did look brave and stoic because of the positions they were in during wartime? There is no doubt that Elizabeth had so much going for her irrespective of the kind of woman that she was because she tied us back tied us back to the blitz she tied us back to winston churchill she tied us back and this is both for america and britain who i think are both countries on a bit of a sticky wicket at the moment yeah we've had the best of the post-war world you know britain and america feeling kind of like we 
occupy and own the moral high ground, you know, these great freewheeling democracies that were the right side of the war and came out on top. We didn't have a compromised war. We weren't occupied, etc., like most of Europe was. Now, um, Elizabeth was part of that narrative. So she, she was a human link. And Philip, you know, the hero that served and one of the and because they live for such a long time, they eventually become exceptional. In the 1980s, you could find, you know, a whole generation of people tied us back to that time. I mean, my grandmother, why did none of you ask me about the Second World War? She would say. And back then, I would think, because everyone always wants to talk about it. But of course, they became more and more special and rarer the longer they lived. And so they had lots of things going in their favor. They were very young when they ascended the throne. They had an opportunity to serve when war back then, it was a black and white issue, not like the much harder wars of today. I mean, Harry's still got a bit of the hero aspect. Some would right. say he's blown it subsequently. But Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., these were much tougher narratives to get your head around. We're fighting the Nazis. Hey, that's the right war to fight. So Elizabeth and Philip were kind of winners in that respect. And their longevity really served them and their reign and hid Britain's decline on the world stage to an extent. But I think in doing so, it made it that bit harder for their children. Oh, that's the truth. How did how did you come up with the idea to t to tell Elizabeth and Philip's story by using, you know, older people that experienced because you almost time travel by the people that you interview in this book that aren't royal related, but they grew up in the same time and they, and they painted the, the environment for us. Well, it's interesting, again, in a way that Charles just can't be, you know, today I was on doing some TV thing here and and um, the presenter said, oh, you know, it's going to be a global spectacle like 1953. And I'm like, I think we have to own the fact that it, it isn't going to be like 1953. It's just not going to have the cachet and the pull that the coronation had in 1953. But I, when I was very struck and I'd worked, obviously I'd done three books about the women serving in World War II, particularly Bletchley girls and, and army girls. And, I, and they were all the Queen's generation. In fact, the Queen was younger than most of them. And I was the commonality of experience then in a way that we live in much more diverse ways today mm. almost all of them went down the Isle Virgins yeah because they were very young in the war the women who sort of had the unbuttoning as the bombs fell tended to be over 30 most illegitimate pregnancies they were counted by the way were to women over 30 who wow. thought why why not now if never why not now? whereas girls just out of school into their little army uniform predominantly not exclusively but predominantly did what they were told and the thing to do after the war, and we don't like to hear it now because of our feminist agenda, the thing to do was not to get a job. Most women were being encouraged, certainly in Britain anyway, back into the home. The Beverage Report told women to breed for Britain. Oh, my um, gosh. We, I've, heard, I've heard you yeah, say that did. before. I've heard you say that yeah. before and I cringe. That's crazy. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? And we think of that as for us here in Britain, it was a time when this big Labour socialist project came in and it was about redistribution of wealth. But it wasn't about equality. No, the women were to go back into the home, take off their uniform. And on the whole, most of them wanted to. Because their wartime jobs, however glossy and exciting we make them sound now, they weren't particularly exciting. They were paid much less than men. And of course, what, what stock was at the highest premium back then post-war? Young men. A whole load have been knocked out. Hundreds of thousands have been killed. So you want to bag your man. And that's what they did. Elizabeth and Philip in 1947 spearheaded a massive trend they literally in terms of identity politics there was one identity a young woman 
bag younger than ever before it's certainly interwar much younger than in the interwar period the average age of the average bride was 22 years old in 1947 elizabeth was 21 wow. so they they get their man and they hurtle down the aisle, most of them having just written him a few letters so what was really interesting about philip and elizabeth's relationship was that it wasn't so different from all these other girls, although they came from much lower stock. There was this similarity, and they all were asking permission from their parents. Well, my dad was a policeman. It's a bit like, oh, my dad was a king, you know. Yeah. But they actually, the, the, the men coming back would ask the dad, whether he be king or a policeman, before he asked the bride-to-be. It's crazy to think how much things have changed. You know, I this is I guess I'm asking you this from a historian perspective. Why have we evolved in such a different direction? I mean, isn't there something I hate saying this, but I grew up in the South where you were expected to be a virgin until marriage. I mean, uh, you know how old I am. Hopefully the listeners don't. But um, how, how she looks great, guys. <laughs> how how have we evolved? Is it a lack of faith? Is it um? Is it the the creation of reality television? I mean, what has made a shift so aggressively from these? Because I read this book and I think, God, that's so romantic. That's so charming. That 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 this these were their objectives: marry young, have have a family. Except, but, but on the on the one hand, yes. But on the other hand, it's a bit of a facade. Mm. So and and. Very much, Philip and Elizabeth are used by church and state to spearhead this new moral regeneration because there has been moral or perceived to have been moral degeneration during the war. Highest number of applications for divorces, people returning from the front, they've you know done whatever they've done, women have been having it off with the neighbour, etc. So we need to belt and braces it back to normal. We use the facade, the fairy tale image of Elizabeth and Philip. Meanwhile, of course, we're selling in a new idea of what marriage means. While women don't have a sort of feminist watershed post-World War II in the way that they were given the vote after World War I, they do very heavily buy into the idea of companionate marriage. And, and this is not something that really exists between the wars. But women are coming back from the front, they're picking out their men, and they're expecting their spouse to be their companion and also to be sexually exclusive. So they are, they've got heightened ideas about what marriage, a companionate marriage will deliver. Yes, they'll get in there and they'll breed for Britain. Most of them had three, four children like Elizabeth, but they want something more from their husband than just a breadwinner. This isn't just about progeny and property and propriety. And I would suggest, in fact, I know that's one of the reasons why the divorce rate starts or the application for divorce starts soaring. Because if you've got higher expectations, you're much more likely to be disappointed. Ooh, so true. And of course, th yeah. And, and, and divorce, certainly in Britain, it's the, the divorce reform doesn't come in until the late 60s. So we keep a lid on these marriages. Elizabeth and Philip's generation are the last generation to get married and to predominantly stay married. By the 70s, 80s, we're seeing 50% of couples getting divorced, and it's pretty much stayed at a static 50% ever since, even though lots of people don't even bother getting married anymore. Now, what I would suggest carefully in a curated fashion, because we're still very, um, what's the word, sensitive about how we talk about the late queen, is that her model of marriage with Philip, while she might have thought it was companion at age 20, 
one going into it, she was definitely hook, line and sinkered for him. She was really crushed out on Philip. She hadn't really seen anybody else that she wasn't related to. Locked down in Windsor. She, um, her marriage to him was more of an independent style of marriage. It wasn't the companionate, exclusive, we do everything together, we derive our main companionship from each other. That's not how the marriage ended up. Now, that's not to say it wasn't a very successful marriage, but it wasn't the standard post-war style of marriage. We know that Cowsweek, she never went near Cowsweek. Off he goes doing a sailing shtick. Off he goes in his fast cars. We know because we know his form before. I know one of the, I wrote the Bletcher girls and one of the women uh, uh, was a personal friend of Osla Benning, one of his first girlfriends. He had uh, what would be pre-war form for choosing, picking extraordinarily beautiful women, gorgeous women. Now, the Queen was a sweet looking girl, but she wasn't Osla Benning, who was this Canadian debutante Bletchley Park, who would go off with her dashing prince when he came back from leave. And she wasn't Cabina Wright. The American actress. So I would su- I would suggest now we don't know what happens with Philip in later years. We do know their marriage. They both referred to it as tolerant, whatever that might mean. But he, he liked very very beautiful women. Read into that what you will. He never stopped liking them. We know we know that right. he liked fast cars. He he had hobbies. So did the Queen. Anything that um, had four legs chewed grass and uh, could could uh, you know move fast a horse you know that was her that was her world and, and arguably a lot of marriages thrive on difference but what was key in their relationship was monarchy was the mission and that's what was lacking in Charles's and Diana's and the other problem for Charles and Diana was that that kind of posh propensity to turn a blind eye if there was fidelity to not notice it because aristocrats incidentally you know they've well, they've never been particularly good at staying in just one bed, put it like that. So there's, and, and they're also quite clannish. They'll tend to look out for each other. They don't buy into the kind of media gossip. Or, but this is changing very much and started changing in the 80s when you've got mass media, other options, you get media celebrities kind of knocking out almost the old school aristocratic uh, class of people in Britain who hogged the limelight prior to that. And so I think that Charles and Diana were, were almost set up to fail. All the the sort of setting and the scenery, the white dress, the handsome man, it was sort of a replica of his father and mother. But times had changed. Philip and Elizabeth was this static image and underneath them was this extraordinary social change taking place. The divorce laws are reformed in the 60s. By the 70s and 80s, divorces that are a record high. We no longer tolerate infidelity. If you want to have sex with someone else, you go and get married to someone else. Right. These are now options that are available. And I think that at the same time, ideas of monarchy had weakened as well. At some point, you know, Barbara, who I love dearly, she's still alive, age 97. She's seen five, five, five sovereigns in her life. She, she really believes that the sovereign is divinely appointed by God. I mean, so, so that, that doesn't exist any longer in the 80s when Charles and Diana get married. Right. I mean, that I, I, I've had that conversation before too. And people are like, there's no way, there's no way they think they're chosen by God. I'm like, I'm, it's true. This is a real thing. Um, you, yeah, you answered, thing. you answered one of my questions perfectly because I wanted to ask you about infidelity and, and if it was, um, there were different rules for the upper crust and you, you just said, absolutely there were. Um, so that's fascinating to me. I Another- can give you Kinsey. I, 
I can give you an example in my own family. My yeah. father was a, my grandfather, sorry, was a, for want of a better description, a very educated tradesman. He was a physician, ended up being physician to the Queen up in Scotland. Sir Derek Dunlop knighted for his services to medicine. And I discovered 40 years after his death that the rumours he had an affair with the Duchess of Buccleuch, incidentally, yes, a relative of the royal family, were true. I discovered because her letters to Alan Price Jones were found in, I think it's Yale University, and Hugo Vickers got me a copy of the letters saying that uh, Donald Dunlop was, not Donald Dunlop, so that's my father, Derek Dunlop was one of her most loyal lovers. So there I had it. Before my eyes, 40 years after his death, incidentally, and all those those rumours, oh, no, 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 the Dunlops, Marjorie and, and Derek, there was a pin, not the pinnacle because he was just a doctor, but they were, you know, establishment, uh, Scottish society that yeah. seemed, seemed to be doing the right thing. And she did wear, incidentally, a headscarf, my mother-in-law, and she was pretty crabby. And now I know why. Uh, she did always say, in, interestingly, I can't bear the way that woman has to make an entrance, referring to the Duchess of Buccleuch. And now I know why she couldn't bear it. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you realized that. Was that wild? It was wild. I have to be quite careful. I think it's safe with you because it's an American podcast because right. my aunt, my, my father's deceased now, but my aunt is still alive and I'm not sure she'd want everyone to know that her father oh, I think was, that um, what's the word? I think well, it's it is quite cool for me. It's very, it, 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 and he was a bit of a player. He was a good looking guy, Derek Dunlop. He had a I'm, twinkle. Um, you know, I have noticed reading your book, and do I have a few more minutes with you? I'm sorry. I know I told you 30 minutes. Yes, for sure. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So, in reading some of your descriptions of Philip, I noticed in talking to you on some of these shows, you almost describe them similarly. Um, it's, you know, you say about Philip, he can't just go off and become a plumber. He is a prince. He can't check out. He can't clock out. And you've said the same thing about um, Prince Harry. Do you think that Harry or Philip saw their similarities in each other? There was an affection there. But don't forget that Harry was born into the very secure British royal family mm -hmm. in a very different generation. I think that Philip had a keener sense of the outsider status of Diana. There was a font a fondness, or at least he was he he tried to facilitate her entry into the family. Ultimately he failed. Um but he understood the difficulties of penetrating not just the family, but the suits. Mm. I mean, some of the royal household are a well, they're a bit of a number, some of them. And that's why I don't I never find the comparisons between Megan and Kate very fair because Kate's parents very deliberately sent her to all the right sort of schools, these English public schools, which are really a sort of petri dish to, if not marry into royalty, certainly become a member of a royal household. Incidentally, she went to and was unhappy at Down House, which was the same school as my cuckolded grandmother went to, <laughs> a sort of smart all girls boarding school that she didn't enjoy. I think she was a day girl there. She then went to Marlborough. So She's to the manor born, although she's a commoner, Kate. She knows all the same people. She understands the mindset. I think it's really important to point out to an American audience that in Britain, weirdly, as we bubble along with this goddamn awful slow growth economy and hopeless Brexit, um, it's still seen as a bit vulgar to keenly earn money, to be overtly ambitious. It's, one mustn't be too effortful about how one acquires wealth. And um, 
the royal family, of course, have never had to acquire wealth because they've they inherit it. So it's all quite effortless, and it's therefore easy in contrast to seem like one is a bit parvenu or nouveau or effortful. And I think that Meghan would proudly own all of those characteristics because she comes from a totally different world. If Kate was in training, really, from a sort of acquiring accomplishments in these special schools where if she wasn't going to meet a fellow princess, she was certainly probably going to rub shoulders with people she'd later be employing, as she is now the Princess of Wales. Meghan is in sharp-elbowed Hollywood, where she's having to, you know, compete with a whole bunch of girls who look and sound the same as her. And, 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 and she's wearing that ambition in a way that still today in Britain, to our cost, we don't embrace. And I think there was a rub there. I think that a lot of it got labelled as racism or xenophobia. I think it was more keenly about culture, about her looking like she wanted it too much. Ooh. I'm a great believer in wanting it. It's hard work being a woman. Let's not pretend otherwise. Why not go for it, girl? Oh, that is so true. I've absolutely seen that. I was uh, you know, shopping for the coronation and I found the cutest sweater that said ambition. And I was like, I'm not going to wear that in the UK. <laughs> no, no. Hold on to this. The moment her head in America, your economic growth is 60% higher than ours. Wow. So, so go for your jersey with ambition on in America because oh, it's I working it. for you. Oh, you know, another thing you I had never heard and I only had I've only read this in your book, which you I mean, you the way you went into your research for this book is fascinating. You went into these old news archives. You didn't just risk like you didn't just repeat something that you'd read in five other books, which is typically the way these some of these books go. But you talk about um, how Elizabeth and Philip really experienced criticism in the newspapers in the 1940s, the 1950s. They even would run polls, the kind we see in the Express today, should Elizabeth marry Philip. And you said there was a lot of prejudice towards Philip. Um, in that way, I see similarities to Meghan, obviously, but I don't think I realized how that, that there was any pushback other than maybe from the Queen Mother. Oh, and really quickly, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. You also had the, another story I'd never heard before was the Queen Mother injuring herself. Maybe I think she slipped. And I yes, think it was yes, at Balmoral. Balmoral. But it gives mm. Elizabeth and Philip the, for the first time the opportunity to really get to know each other. Can you tell me about those both of those things? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I know this because I grew up in Scotland and my dad worked for a laird. The Queen Mother's family, the Bose Lions, were a big Scottish clan, the Strathmores and Glam's Castle, one of the thumpingly, terrifyingly uh, Scottish clans who are, they're much more exclusive, weirdly, than the English aristocracy. They're properly scary in some ways. And this was a whole different world that Philip had to penetrate. And they just didn't, I think she had, was she one of nine or did she have nine siblings? I can't remember exactly. She was one of nine. She, her siblings couldn't abide Philip, particularly one brother. And the Queen was suspicious of Philip. Again, she comes from this effortless landed aristocracy cleft to the mountains of Scotland, you know, with your 
kilt in one, you know, you're kilted male and you're stag up on the mountain and 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 no real worry about or there is today but back then about how you're going to work out how to pay for things and by the way the really rich scots also all have a house in eaton square in london we're talking about proper money old money and it's very exclusive and he had a, a really tough time and she never lost that skepticism about the role of her son-in-law and it was magnified times two by mary so by her mother-in-law queen mary who remember didn't die till 53 just before the coronation and it was them that pushed back against the idea of the house of windsor's name being changed actually there's no real reason and i write about this why philip couldn't have had house of edinburgh of windsor why it couldn't have, it didn't have to be Mountbatten. it already changed his name once it was just about it being something that was his, given to his children and his wife. It was quite cruel. But again, Winston Churchill, who came back into power post-war too old, was, I thought, and again, he didn't trust Philip. Most of them didn't trust Philip. What do we mean by trust? He Again, this goes back, and a lot of my old women said this, he was so good looking. And he also, he had a he had a real sense of entitlement, but arguably, as does Meghan, but arguably you can't survive in that environment without a sense of entitlement. Although, and that's where Kate's an interesting case, because she works alongside alongside the narrative rather than pushing or trying to change it. Mm -hmm. But like I say, she grew up as part of it right. in the heart of England, in those special public schools. Even Philip didn't manage that. Remember, he went to the wrong school in Scotland, Gordonston, which was seen as a bit of a sort of... Um, well, an experiment. It's certainly, if you really want to have your posh edges knocked off, you go to Eton as a man, not to Gordonston, for goodness sake. So I, I do, there is, I do have a degree of compassion for Megan. I know she's problematic and she wouldn't have got where she's got if she didn't have um, a, 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 an overarching sense of self, which can lead to distortions and even unpleasantness. But um, I think at the same time, it's very easy to cast the outsider as the enemy, as the problem. And I think what we've seen recently is most of the, the problem comes from Harry's relationship with his own family, which I think is, means it's only right that he's the one at the coronation. This is his problem. It's not really Meghan's. Right. Oh, that's good. That's good insight. Can you quickly just tell me, if, is that, did I repeat that story correctly about her falling and them getting a little alone time? Um, yes. So, of so you're right. Yes, you're quite right. Sorry, I just went off on one there about the Queen Mother. Oh, she no, did, they great. were up in Balmoral and she, she stumbles. She's crossing a burn. They say burns in Scotland. They don't say streams. And she she twists around because she never wore appropriate shoes. She was weirdly towny like that, sort of little shoes, you know, and she was always a bit top heavy, let's be honest. I mean, the number of men who were rude about her weight back then, I had to sort of edit quite a lot of it because now you just can't go around calling people fat. But they all called her fat. <laughs> observations that she was fat at her daughter's wedding <laughs> and looking like a meringue or a tangerine. She had terrible taste in clothes. Anyway, that's an entree new. Yeah. Um um, what was I going to say? So, yeah, she slips. And so she's therefore often sort of bed with her leg up. And the king was always he was he had a massive crush on his daughter. Obviously, He was devoted to his two daughters. Couldn't believe he managed to produce anything so vaguely normal. And um, and also, I think, felt great compassion for Elizabeth, the pressure on her. He had seen it go so horribly wrong for his brother, of course, Edward. And um, 
I think it, it was there, I know, in fact, it was there that they off record agreed that Philip and Elizabeth could be together. But that was just the first step because it's you're not just marrying the the person, you're marrying the institution and the institution's one of state. So I think all these things are riddled with challenges, which does make Philip and Elizabeth's marriage very special. But we did cut it quite a lot of slack. I think arguably we could probably cut Kate and William's marriage a bit of slack too, because we realise it's really challenging to have a relationship in the public eye look i mean charles and diana are a spectacular example of that mm. and actually when a marriage starts going wrong in the goldfish bowl which is what it is people who really suffer of course are the children which is people always talk about harry losing his mother but harry also lived the most horrific divorce in private and in public oh yeah that's so, so true do you have any diana stories before i let you go well, I, I just want to say that I met Charles just before he got married to Diana. And because I'm a little bit older than you can see. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, was he um, so dreamy in, when at that age? He was, because he was to people watching. So he was quite good looking. I mean, he's always got these, my mum says, oh, eyes plonked on top of his nose. Because he's got these rather close together <laughs> eyes. Harry has those too. Cousins. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite strong, Jean. Shh. Anyway, um, but he was quite dashing. And my mum was a wonderful royalist. So we were bundled out to go and meet him. He was. It was in Scotland. And the Scots aren't nearly so um, keen on the royals. So we got some really good session on the dyke it's the name for a wall in scotland and we got in the local paper and then i ordered in fact i'm thinking can i find is the photograph to hand so that i can show you this picture of me with prince charles just give me one second oh this is hilarious i love it wait i'm now panicking Kinsley. no don't panic i have time don't panic yeah, look, I think it's in here. So there's this picture. So I should have it framed really on my wall instead of yes, in an envelope. You so because my mum, my mum sent it down to me. But I um I wanted it to go in the book, but it didn't make the cut. But anyway, so I'm sitting on that, and of course he's just about to get married to Diana. And I'm an uh, what would I be? It's 81. I'm born in 74. So I'm a seven-year-old girl. I'm like, where's the princess? Do you know, yeah. I'm not interested in child. I don't care how good looking he is. <laughs> I'm like, where's the princess? And I'm like, you can see me like, looking so unimpressed because I'm just wanting the princess. Whereas my mum is like drooling. She's having a middle-aged moment. Wait for it. Wait for it, babes. Can you see that? Can you oh see it? Oh my gosh. You're, that is exactly right. You have other things on your mind, but your mom, yeah. it, you can see that she's got cartoon hearts popping out of her eyeballs. Yes. Yes. Doesn't so she? Cute. Absolutely. I love yeah. that you have that. That's an incredible photo. It's great, isn't it? It's a really good photo. So, and, and then I remember also very vividly um, when Diana got married and we were all sitting back then. There was just even even in the early 1980s, you know, we all huddled around a telly and the, the best telly in the village, you know, and, um, and we were at our neighbor's house. And I remember my mum talking to another mum going, well, poor queen, of course, because her parents are divorced and she really can't bear divorce the queen. So even in the early 80s, this kind of idea that, you know, Diana was somehow sold goods because her parents were divorced. It was still not the done thing. The chattering classes didn't approve of divorce, even then, especially not someone marrying our future king. Wow. And look where it all ended up. Look where it all ended up. Extraordinary, really, to think. Well, I, I would I... also say on Diana, uh -huh. just very quickly on the, on the Harry story. People always go, he lost his mother. But so first of all, we've taken into account that he had this horrific divorce, that his, he lived through this horrific divorce. 
But also, he was away in prep school from a really young age. I think he went, what age did he go? I can't remember. It's in spare. It's quite eight or something. So not only are his parents split, so he's only spending half his holidays with his mother, but he's also most of the time in boarding school. So actually, his exposure to his mother is very limited in comparison with, say, what you or I grew up with. Right. And unlike William, he, lo- he didn't get those extra years. He didn't get to know her as a more mature adolescent. So a lot of what he's gone through is this vivid print of imagination. He's recrafted the story, which he's been able to do in a place of pain, which is why two and two sometimes equals five in Harry's head. And I refuse to therefore cast him in Piers Morgan style as the enemy. He's a product of a crazy system in a crazy country with a crazy press and sometimes, yeah, she was even a bit crazy, Diana. <laughs> I agree. I know. We loved her for it. I know. I agree. Well, this is the most beautiful book, Dr. Tessa Dunlop. I'm so proud of you. I'm sure oh, you don't need you. to hear that, but it is the most beautiful book. And um, you can get it by the time this podcast is out. You should be able to walk into your Barnes & Noble. You should be able to order it on Amazon. And um, I can't wait for your next one. It's out one. now. It's out yeah, now. Yeah. So I, this is yeah. going up here in a second. And you... Are you working on anything new right now? Yeah, I am. I'm I'm working on, well, I did my PhD on an amazing queen. The unknown fact about Prince Charles or King Charles, sorry, is he has 10 properties in Romania. Oh. And it says there's a place to go. And he went there every year after the revolution until the pandemic. And he addresses our large Romanian diaspora here in Britain in Romanian sometimes. Like he loves sort of quirky interests and stuff. And it's because he always refers to her as his great aunt. In fact, she was a cousin several times removed. King, um, the, 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 the queen's grandfather, she was his first cousin. She was a, a, an English princess. She became the queen of Romania during World War One. They, she was intended to marry George V. Instead, Queen Mary did. And all the way through, Queen Mary and Queen Marie, who couldn't have been more different. Queen Marie was this massive show off in the Paris Peace Conference. She was the most photographed woman in the world. And Queen Mary was, was, the, was the English equivalent. And they couldn't have been more different. And I want to explore those two women, Marie and Mary, are the, really the only two uh, royals in World War I who came out of that conflict emboldened. It decimated. It got rid of the Tsars in Russia. It got rid of all the German princes and principalities. But Queen Marie of Romania became was world famous. She was buried by the communists, her legacy. And Queen Mary, likewise, comes out leading her rather weak, poofy-eyed, um, poochy-eyed husband um, out of the war. And so I'm looking at their, I'm examining their relationship. And both of them had terrible eldest sons who abdicated. That's what happens if you farm out your eldest children off the tit into the arms of a another and lose control i'm afraid be warned oh my yeah. gosh both their sons carol of romania carol of romania had really inappropriate lovers could never get rid of them couldn't you know he's just addicted to women and fast cars very weak abdicated twice in fact if that's even possible and of course <laughs> edward we know all about and the wonderful thing was mary i've just told you my entire book now you won't nobody will need to buy it no, it's not even no. written yet mary she was a terrible snob she married into the british you know she's a queen of blooming england um and having come from a much lesser royal place than marie who is born an English princess granddaughter of Queen Victoria Mary says when finally her son um you know abdicates and lets everyone down uh, and Marie writes to her from Romania oh I understand your pain yeah. and, and and Mary says God we're no better than Romania it's just such a wonderful line it's just so snobbish I, I mean I think that that's one of the things that I love about the royal family is um how it, it's almost 
too good to be true. It's like a soap opera. I mean, just that yeah. one line right there. It's it's like something. It's a it's a parody. It's a parody. Uh, well, I I hope that's I can... why Kinsey. Uh-huh. That's why I want to I want to look after them a little bit better. I worry about all this at the moment. You know, oh God, they've become the kind of like face of slavery and the face of all the bad parts of our history. And it's not fair to do that. It's you not. know, we all carry that. I carry that. I have c- c- colonialists in, in my family who worked in Ceylon, or but I, but it's just all pinned on on the royals. And I think it's kind of it's become ridiculous, like this kind of crazy pantomime identity politics used against or for our royal family in a really ugly way. And I think we need to remember that for the the last hundred years and more, they've been above politics. They've not been ruling the roost. They don't have real political power. They're not Donald Trump, for goodness sake. Right. No, absolutely. Um, Well, I hope I see you. I'm coming there in two weeks and I'd love to just, you know what? I saw you at the Queen's funeral and I almost said hi to you, but I didn't think you knew who I was. You walked past me outside the Ritz and I was like, oh, that's Tessa. And I almost said hi to you. Stop me. I know. I was, I I just was afraid you didn't know who I was and I didn't want to look like an idiot, but I do hope I see you at coronation. I'm going to throw my arms around you if I do. And um, I greatly appreciate it. Have a drinky poos. We'll have, well, we have a little drinky poos. We'll have oh, a little I, drinky poos. I love that idea. Um, but it was uh, yeah. great to great to spend my morning with you. You are so fascinating, and you're so good at your job. And I I do appreciate your friendship. You've I've reached out to you, and I've had bad days, and you've been very kind to me. And your advice is always wonderful. So I appreciate you. Thanks, Kinsey. I look forward to hearing the podcast. And you look as fresh in the morning as you do in the evening. God bless you, girlfriend. You're amazing. Okay, I do love the Americans. You're always so can do. It's so fresh. Honestly, we're a little bit wilting here. I think we need the coronation to prop us up. Can't come soon enough. Okay, lots of love. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye, Tessa. Bye, Kinsey. Bye.